I think we can get started. I know that some people might still be lost in the European Parliament trying to find their way here, but uh, the room is pretty full, so I think we can, uh, we can give it a go. Uh, first of all, welcome to the first panel of the afternoon. My name is Andreas Konstantinidis, and I am the head of APCO's uh, European Technology Practice. Uh, I will be hosting today, uh, uh, the, I will be moderating a digital uh, identity panel. The, the panel is kindly hosted by MEP Ashley Fox, which uh, you all know. So to start with, I would like to give him the floor to say a few words. Well, thank you very much for your kind introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and also to have the, the opportunity to talk about something that isn't related to Brexit. Um, for those of you that, that don't know me, I'm, I'm also the chairman of the European Parliament All-Party Innovation Group. Um, and we formed, we formed this group to ensure that policymakers were informed about the advances in modern technology, because far too often policymakers are quite happy to talk about it uh, without actually knowing very much at all on the subject. Um, it, it's, I want to thank APCO Worldwide for organising this event. We've had a splendid turnout, and I think for the, for the next event we'll need a, a bigger room. But I wanted to, to talk today particularly about digital identity. I think digital identity is the most important aspect of unlocking the potential of blockchain and also more broadly vital to the future of our digital society. I'd like to make three points from the perspective of policymakers. The importance of providing security, the necessity for the clarity of regulation and the need for a change of mentality. Addressing the importance of security. One of the biggest hurdles that digital identity has had to combat is the notion of whether an individual's data will be safely stored anywhere other than in government archives. And this has been one of the biggest inhibitors for the development of digital ID. Blockchain offers the opportunity to allay some of these fears, with it being immutable and unhackable. Or so we hope. Storing identity on blockchain allows for an individual's data to be arguably more secure. Solutions have been developed that put consumers in control of their own data and only let relevant agencies see the necessary information. In addition, putting the data owner in control also allows them to give read and write access to only those that they wish to give it to. From my perspective, this is a move in the right direction. As we see more and more data breaches and questions over data ownership, embracing a blockchain solution could solve some of these problems. The second point is the necessity to provide clarity. Industry thrives on clarity, and policymakers are often guilty of not giving this to them. A great example of this is the fear that blockchain and the GDPR would be incompatible. I hosted a discussion on this topic with the Innovation Group earlier this year, and one of the most hotly debated aspects was whether the right of erasure was possible on the blockchain. Now, the conclusion to this was yes. We needed to acknowledge that there is a broader definition to erasure than physically destroying a record or deleting the information from a server. It can also be from the removal of a private key. 
Issues such as these arrive consistently in the advent of new technology, and with digital ID it will be no different. It will be important to ensure that digital ID is accepted as a legal form of identification for this. Developers will need to know what solutions need to be inbuilt to ensure their compatibility. It is for this reason that I am a strong advocate of sandboxes, as I believe it gives entrepreneurs the opportunity to understand the regulatory environment that they have to comply with, but also gives supervisors the opportunity to learn about new technology and have a closer eye on the impact of it. The final point I'd like to make is one of needing to change mentality. This is a point I've made on a number of occasions in relation to PSD2, Payment Services Directive. However, it is also relevant here. When we look at identity and the information that is collected from us, the metrics of first name, last name, date of birth and address, seem a little thin in comparison to the data available. Huge amounts of data are collected from us every day, whether that is spending habits or the articles we've read. Arguably, this information will be able to provide a better idea of an individual's identity than a name and address. However, I think when we are met with technological advances, it is often difficult to move ourselves out of the box of the familiar and to look to see how the technology can improve what we already have rather than the new opportunities it presents. We need to adapt what ID is to more than just what we were able to collect in the early 1900s. Digital ID on the blockchain offers this opportunity. Rather than just digitalizing existing identity, it can develop a system where identity can be created using the huge amounts of information collected. We can have new metrics, and this also has the potential of including a wider range of people who are excluded from previous IDs. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, uh, Mr. Fox. Uh, I think the next person that uh, would can, uh, can set the stage is Andrea Servida, Head of Unit for uh, e-Government and Trust in the European Commission. Before becoming Head of Unit, he led the EIDAS task force, and uh, we've uh, known each other you know, in that domain for a number of years. We started the discussion on the EIDAS uh, back in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and Andrea, it would be great if you can uh, touch upon some of the early lessons that we've learned on EIDAS, especially when it comes down to the mutual recognition of EID, and if you can also talk about uh, the European blockchain infrastructure and also how that relates to, to digital identity. Uh, and you have uh, five or six minutes. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. Good afternoon to everybody. I'm really pleased to be here today to address you and to try to contribute, even though it's going to be difficult for Andres to keep me uh, with regard to the timing. I'm not that disciplined that he knows very well. Um, I think that the discussion of today is key, and I would like just to start linking to the third point that was made by the Honourable Member of the Parliament, because the change of culture and the change of attitude is important. Um, the experience that we have uh, developed, gained with IADAS, is that uh, if you look at the regulation, it's the regulation which applies across the 28 member states. 
we don't define what is identity. We talk about identity, identification, but we don't define what is identity. Why? Because that is a cultural, very sensitive, culturally is very sensitive, but eventually what counts is what is indeed that you can enforce in relation to what you want to do. If you need to know whether I'm more than 18, you don't need to have my, age, my date of birth. You need to have a trusted assertion about my age. And is yes or no with regard to what is the threshold. Am I over 18? Yes. But that yes it should be a trustworthy assertion that should be in a way linked to an identity that could indeed be disclosed if a process is there and the need is there for that assertion to lead to the identity. Why I'm saying this? I'm saying this because... Digital identity, we see digital identity in the context and not digital ID. And this is why in Europe, under Yadas, we talk about electronic identification. So digital identity is going to be what will speak for us in the digital. And there is where blockchain is going to be extremely important. Assertion like what is whether my age is more than 18 or not. Once is assessed and once I'm proved to be al uh, alive and I can enforce that assertion myself or I can produce and share that assertion myself with uh, a security link that is there to make it possible for the relying party to receive this assertion in full compliance with what are the obligations that he has to discharge, then there is no point for me to seek for that assertion more than once. And there is where I think it's important to look at how the technology is making it possible for digital identity to really flesh out only what is indeed needed for the purpose. What speaks for me, but not about me. I need to prove that I'm residing in the country and I have a certain, more than a certain age. Two asserted yes are needed. They don't need to know where in the country I live. They need to know that I'm there. And there is where I think that indeed there is a huge opportunity, as the Honourable, Honourable Member of the Parliament, European Parliament just said, to unlock potential for the people and for the economy, for the social growth that we, can, we all strive to achieve. This is important because we have seen with the IDAS, and the IDAS is about, let me call it in this way, for those who read international press, is the legal identity. What makes Andrea Servida to be Andrea Servida? Fine, in my country is a process by which, you know, I'm given actually an identity by my state. You like it, you don't like it, it doesn't really matter. But associated to this process, there is the possibility for me to use digital representation of that identity to access public services in my country. I'm a citizen of Italy, I mean Italian, but also a citizen of Europe. The other's regulation allows me to rely under certain conditions on the use of these identification means to access services provided to me and to which I may be entitled by another public administration or in another member state. Is this a huge, of huge importance? Yes, it is. Because to some extent it provides a trust anchor across the member states of what in the digital is going to be the way in which we can leverage whatever we are relying upon at the national level for us to access services in the, that are offered by the public sector. To some extent, it's like the passport. Passport is something that regulate, is regulated between countries, but is leveraged in particular in regulated environments where identity is to be proved for whatever reason. 
And this is why, for instance, in the work that we have been doing since, I would say, the adoption of uh, EADRS regulation 2014 and even before then, we have tried to make sure that, uh, that in sector-specific legislation, the digital is taken into account in the right way. The most, I would say, outstanding, I would say, um, um, uh, achievement that I can uh, share with you today is certainly, I would say, the anti-money laundering directive, where digital identity uh, under the other regulation are knowledge to be relevant and possibly uh, appropriate for the to provide the proofs of in-person verification of the prospective clients to a bank which has, or a financial institution that has to meet these type of challenges. I think this is important because it gets then to who is going to benefit and how. If we see what is indeed now available across the member states, and we have 24 countries now that are rolling out electronic identity for the purpose of accessing public services, we can leverage those investments to make the anchoring of the identity or whatever is going to speak for us in the blockchain, but in the digital in general, to be enforceable, which will make us, which will give us the possibility to disclose selectively, consciously, only those attributes that are needed for the transaction. There is no point of if I want to comply with a true identity policy or whatever service provider to give my GSM number. No, that service provider may be receiving or may should be open to receive what is a trusted assertion for which a country is taking responsibility and the liabilities toward all the other 27 member states for that assertion to be uniquely linked to what I indeed make myself to speak for me in that in that particular or in that particular setting. And this is important because I mean identity, digital identity, so not the full disclosure of all our personal data, as I think the Honourable Member of the Parliament just said, but what is indeed that is relevant in a way that can be enforced and linked in a unique and secure way to a distinguished person, those disclosures will make us to be able to fully comply with GDPR. Data minimization is there. And I think that that is where there is certainly the, I would say, opportunities and the leverage, the first lever. The second one is that blockchain certainly is, as it was alluded to before, an, 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 certainly an interesting environment to manage selectively the disclosures of what speaks for us. Proofs, assertion, attributes, with or without the associated information about my identity. But that can be done in a way that indeed is under my control. We need to reestablish the control of identity to those who are owning the data, whether it is natural person, legal person. Because if we don't do this, then of course, I mean, we are not going to benefit from what is the value that is created in a way that unfortunately now is transparent to most of the user with the data that we have. And this is seeding for the future. Because if we don't go that down that path, it will be difficult to regain control. So when all these technology will be coupled with even more technologies. We'll have infospheres, devices, which will act on our behalf towards the digital. We have plenty of opportunities, potential for growth, potentials for enjoyment, seamless, and I would say secure, but the control is to be 
re-establish, and I think the GDPR goes in that direction. The blockchain goes in the, as a concept, as a model, goes in that direction. We need to leverage this, I would say, for the future of our society. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Andrea, right on time. Uh, and uh, next in line is uh, another Andreas. Maybe it's uh, only panel in Brussels with three Andreas uh, <laughs> out of the seven. Uh, Andreas Ebert is a regional technology officer for Microsoft in the EU. He has been with Microsoft for close to two de decades. Three? Three. <laughs> uh, and uh, he has been a member of multiple advisory uh, and expert groups in Brussels. Uh, Andreas, maybe you can uh, talk to us about what Microsoft has been doing in uh, trying to commercialize blockchain-based decentralized uh, identities. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you today. I'd like to pick up immediately statements made earlier in a way around basically unhackable kind of blockchains or other piece of technology. I do think if other researchers or researchers funded by European research funding are successful in the quest to tackle quantum computing, maybe we should reconsider the term unhackable for blockchain-based of technologies in a way. So it's a kind of interesting, basically, overlap between different developments happening in society and technology and, and industry that they're influencing each other. And I think the reaction needs to be constantly evaluated what is the proper way going forward on this one. So I'd like to focus on four things. As a commercial entity, I'm uh, with Microsoft, so it's a company wh whose business model is based on a platform business model. And I'd like to explain what this means in this context. As a platform company, you're not creating individual solutions where you have targeted kind of individual projects being done at the leading edge of whatever kind of new concept is. As a platform company, you're creating a platform that innovation can happen on top of your platform. And both areas, which is the, the topic of today, blockchain identity, <clears throat> are what we call platform products or domains in a way. So for instance, uh, the way how different blockchains can be implemented on one side is of course on one side the kind of conceptual architecture, but making as simple as possible that innovation can materialize in the market as fast as possible is where the contribution of our company is hopefully contributing a bit to this kind of uh, effect on this one. On the other side, identity has been a core component, I think, of every large IT company's kind of business journey. And we do have all these kind of platform products around enterprise-oriented identity, enterprise-to-consumer-oriented identities, or identities only for the consumer sector, like our Hotmail account kind of system. But I'd like to share more information of a new world where we want to get into a decentralized identity as a first-class citizen in the whole world of identity. And I think it complements very strongly uh, the two previous speakers' kind of desire that identity should be secure, and secure not only from a cybersecurity perspective, but secure from a conceptual perspective. Who owns the identity? Because even if you have a classically from a technology perspective, PKI infrastructure, the public keys are typically hosted in a database. The database could be hosted by a government entity, could be hosted by a commercial entity, but not by the person who wants to own his own identity in a way. So I do think this kind of desire comes very nicely together in this kind of two developments on one side, what we call the decentralized ID system. And so if you're interested, decentralized ID foundation is more information. You can take a look up on this one. And blockchain as the root 
ledger with an, its capability of immutable store to basically create an, an entity-less kind of root directory of the public keys people are relying upon in the decentralized ID uh, environment. So number one, make decentralized ID a first-class citizen is an objective. Uh, our ID architect, Kim Cameron, maybe some of you know, Kim Cameron is intensely working on. The other thing is around security. Security can be done via blockchain, and, but there's also other technologies available. One of those uh, technologies is called confidential computing, which is a broader set of technologies to keep processing as secure as possible. Because security need to be available, on number one, on the kind of conceptual side. Is the protocol secure? Is the process secure? But the implementation security is as important as the uh, conceptual security, anyway. The second thing is around how to basically manage your own identities. And the concept in the decentralized ID foundation work, again, is a 50 plus kind of organizations partnering to create this protocol. And you can Im imagine it's similar to the DNS system of the internet. Who owns the DNS from a database perspective? Because it has mutual store about all the kind of the yellow pages of, of the public internet, but the same kind of principle should be behind the decentralized ID infrastructure on this one. So imagine that you want to store your own identities, and it could be not only one, but it could be many, because you might uh, publish some of your identities, others only for bilateral kind of interactions in a way. So you need to represent them. And so the concept being used there is called the identity hub separating the concept of your identity with the physical representation storage. could be your device, it could be your car, it could be a network of different devices, so that you are not relying on the availability on a single physical device where your identity is being stored in a way. And so overlapping these kind of two concepts, consider blockchain as the root of trust in this decentralized self-sovereign identity, sometimes being called decentralized ID uh, system. And there are multiple technology choices available for the transactional kind of side that you have this tamper-proof audit log, all these kind of things. But the foundational root layer is, thing, is one of those areas where blockchain is really uniquely positioned to provide value and create this kind of uh, hook then uh, digital representations can, can be done. One quick comment on the GDPR side, because GDPR has been mentioned a couple of times. Uh, is the blockchain exposed to GDPR? Yes, it is. Is there an area of investigation necessary? Yes, it is. But you can architect solutions around it, and it doesn't relieve any implementing party of the process side of compliance. Blockchain is a technology. GDPR compliance is a process compliance. It should be kind of technology agnostic, but it, it can be architected in the way how you can do that. Last comment on this one is, whenever you are implementing complex technology in a regulated world, like data protection or in regulated industries, think about the economics of compliance. And that's the reason why we focus so much on standardized services, because the significant part of the value proposition on those kind of standard services is that the economics of compliance is orders of magnitude better. It's like if you would build your own car, getting certified for roseworthiness versus getting a car from a mass producer of cars where the type certification <coughs> is from an economic perspective at a different uh, scale. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, uh, Andreas. I would like uh, now to pass the floor to Nicole Sandler from uh, Barclays.
Uh, Nicole is uh, leading on fintech and rectech policy at uh, at Barclays, and she also represents Barclays in a number of uh, expert groups here in uh, in Brussels. Uh, Nicole, do you want to tell us what uh, Barclays is doing in the space? First, I'd like to say thank you for having me today. So far, the conversation's been very interesting. Um, we'll get to some points where we'll see that I'm not fully in agreement with some of the points that have been made, but I think that always makes for a good panel where someone can tell me that I'm wrong at the end of it. Um, so in terms of Barclays, when we're looking at DLT solutions, we'll sit down, there'll be a group of us, whether it'll be someone from legal, someone from policy, someone from strategy, the tech architects, and we'll say, what are the problems that we want to solve? Now, sometimes blockchain will be the answer. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll be part of a solution. When I think about identity, what, what are some of the key issues? Well, some of them are that it's very expensive to verify and authorise. So, for instance, um, I saw a statistic which said 3.3 billion was spent in the UK last year on um, maintenance and administration of KYC. It's a lot of money. Um, when I'm looking at other problems, one of them would be, so I recently remortgaged my very small flat in London. Um, when I remortgaged with my bank, I had to provide all of my identity documents again. It was the same bank, the same mortgage. I was just asking to, to do a remortgage on it. That's very frustrating. Now, if that's frustrating for me, who works at a bank, I can only imagine how frustrating that is for other people who don't have to deal with a bank every single day. Now, I know one of, the question, one of the points that was made earlier was about culture, and there's been a cultural change. So sometimes I'll go to panels and I'll have people say to me, it's very difficult to get banks to think about innovation. It's very difficult to get, to get banks to look at AI and DLT and look at ways of solving problems. And I sit there and I say, well, I've worked at Barclays for a number of years. I've worked in tech policy for five years. Um, there has been a shift in terms of legacy issues and legacy thinking, but I, I don't hold that I think it's difficult at, within banks and within the industry to get them to look at using technologies to solve problems. Um, so I'm, I'm always a bit surprised by that. But I think it's also a cultural change just generally across the public. So if I said to my father, so we, we mentioned self-sovereign identity earlier. If I said to my father, Dad, you can hold your data and you're going to be in total control of it and if something goes wrong, essentially it might be on you because you're going to hold all of the permissions, you're going to hold the keys, it's on you. I think my father would turn around to me and say, I don't... I don't really want to do that. Why would I want to do that? Someone else can hold my data. Someone else can do this. So it's also a change with it across the public as to what they want to be doing with their data. And I think it's not just about changes within the industry. It changes, it changes across, across the whole public and in different jurisdictions as well. You know, What someone might say in one jurisdiction when it comes to identity might not necessarily be the same in another jurisdiction. So I think someone mentioned um, earlier the sandbox solutions. Um, Anyone that knows me knows that I'm a large fan of the sandbox. Barclays went into the FDA sandbox um, in cohorts three. Um, and I think it's a great way to see where your test is hitting a regulatory perimeter. Now, do I think the sandbox was good for Barclays? And we did it actually with, with a number of third-party suppliers. Yes, I did. Do I think that Barclays and the third-party suppliers are the people that are going to benefit most from the sandbox? Absolutely not. I think the people that benefit the most are the regulators and the policymakers because you can see where your test is hitting a perimeter. And that goes to the point of clarity that was mentioned earlier. People want to know what they're allowed to do. And if your regulatory landscape is unclear, it's very difficult to know what you're allowed to do. In fact, it's almost impossible. And for anyone in the industry, whether it's a bank, whether it's a startup, you need to know what you're allowed to do. Because if you think you can't do something, potentially from a, a banking perspective, 
you're not going to do it. Because even if legally you may think that you're okay, you're in a gray area and some lawyer tells you that, it, that it's going to be all right, reputationally it's, it's going to be a problem if something goes wrong. So I, I think we've touched on quite a few of those points earlier. In terms of the, the one point that I was going to say that I may or may not agree with, it's on the GDPR and the right of erasure. I'm going to admit, I'm overjoyed for someone to tell me today that there's nothing wrong with Article 17 and um, the GDPR and blockchain, that they're going to work totally well together. Because I've sat in a number of meetings of both regulators and policymakers where we've turned around and said, I think Article 17 might be a problem for us because it's not clear as drafted what the right of erasure means. It may be that you can erase, you can take something off, the, you can remove your personal data, but I don't understand how that works on the blockchain because blockchain is immutable. So you need to tell me what you mean by erasure. Do you mean encryption? If you mean encryption, that's brilliant. But I have to admit, today is the first day that anyone has told me that Article 17 and, and the blockchain will work well together and it's not an issue. So if that's one takeaway I take, that, that's brilliant. But I have to admit, it's, it's the first time I've, I've heard it. Thank you. I've never been invited, so... <laughs> Here we go. Thank you so much, uh, Nicole. Why don't we move now to, to Luke from uh, VMware. Luke, I'm not going to try to say your last name. You can say uh, how, how you can pronounce it. Luke is a computer science by training, and now he's a global solutions consultant uh, uh, focusing on a couple of, of key accounts such as uh, NATO... And, uh, and Swift. Uh, I know that VMware has announced a couple of uh, important developments on blockchain uh, the last few months. If you can touch upon those, and then uh, we were discussing last night about uh, um, you know, how you can potentially delete blocks, and I guess this yep. also links to yep. the discussion on GDPR. Uh, please go ahead. Yep. Thank you. Uh, my name is pronounced Dow, but uh, don't worry if you cannot pronounce it. Uh, you're not the first one. Now, um, if you look at uh, VMware, we indeed announced a couple of uh, products that's coming up. But in fact, the journey started three, four years ago. And we didn't look at blockchain as what solution can we solve with it. We first looked at the blockchain itself. And one of the key aspects to talk about the blockchain for us is uh, distributed trust. If you don't have a solution where you have a distributed trust, maybe you just should look in a regular database, maybe a replicated database, but not in a blockchain. Because today, blockchain is still a sexy word. A lot of people, they just want to have a proof of concept on blockchain without thinking about that. And on that, we built that on a distributed trust. And uh, this morning, I heard in one of the sessions saying, yeah, scale and security doesn't go together. We don't agree with that. Uh, we looked into a consensus me mechanism which can scale and provide security. And uh, we call that uh, Byzantine fault tolerant uh, agreement. And in fact, the idea is that you're going to come to an agreement on what you put on the, the, the blockchain, uh, the next block, uh, knowing that some of your nodes may be compromised because we said security is safe. Uh, in blockchain, certainly if you look uh, like uh, with Bitcoin, we have like a security by numbers, uh, but you cannot assure that every node will always be 100% sure. So we're assuming that it's not always the case, but still that you have an agreement and that's uh, secured. 
Uh, now, once you have that, you can build on top of that. And uh, what we were working on, it's what we called zero knowledge of proof. And uh, the idea behind it is that you can prove that you have something without showing it. So also we call it verifiable claims. And a daily use, it can be if somebody wants to buy alcohol and he has to show that he's from legal age, why does he not has to show an ID which his birth date on it. It's just good if you can prove, yes, I'm legal age, and that's all they have to know. So, and, and based on that, you can start building uh, further on that. Uh, another use case is like, if you apply for a job, and uh, you want in your CV, you say, I have this education with this degree. If the company that wants to employ you wants to verify that, they cannot call to the, the school because the school would have hundreds of calls each day. They, they, that's not possible. But with verbal claims, you can show that your CV is correct. Because today, if you're applying for a job and certainly if you're recruiting, uh, it's not uncommon that the CVs are sometimes uplifted a little bit. But by doing that, you start building like an ID. And it's not an ID like we put your passport, we put it in a blockchain. It's uh, an ID that can live on different blockchains. You can have like an educational institution making a blockchain where they, they put information on it, but you can have other blockchains. And for us, it's important, and we are also working on that, to connect those different blockchains together. And by doing that, you uh, can buy a trust. Now, to come back on ID, uh, as part of my role, I was also in other sessions with uh, uh, NATO and where they discuss also the use case of blockchain. And one of the use cases, it's like refugees that they, they're facing. So you have in a situation, it can be a war a situation, but it can, can also be a civil uh, disaster, uh, something that's happened. But certainly in a war scenario, by definition, the people who are uh, fleeing from the country, don't trust the government anymore. So then having uh, an ID based, provided by that government, is not something that you can work. On top of that, in the world, there are more than one billion people who don't have any way to prove who they are. They don't have any papers, they don't have birth certificates. Okay, that's maybe uncommon in the Western world, but even, I heard... Uh, just before the meeting that even in the UK, we're talking about one million people that don't have that all those needed papers. So, and then again, you can have a technology like blockchain helping there. And now you will not have one entity who put there the identity, but you have to imagine uh, situations like when an NGO like the Red Cross first time received the refugee, they register them in a blockchain. And further, when they have aided and they go further in the chain of help, the actions taken are taken in a, uh, are noted down in the, the blockchain. And then later on, maybe they arrive in Europe, you have a chain that they can prove that they are from a certain country. Because we know, we can see in the blockchain that the Red Cross <coughs> met them the first time in Syria or in Lebanon or, or another place or at least you have some uh, trust. And that's a different way of looking uh, to an identity, but it's certainly uh, a way worthwhile to investigating it. And that's, uh, yeah, and we are, of course, 
commercial company. We want to bring our products, but what we made are on the consensus agreement, we open source it because we also recognize, like I said, you will have different blockchains connecting to each other. It will not only blockchains running on VMware technology, you will have them running at Microsoft, IBM technology. It's important that they can work together. And that's why we are open sourcing it, giving different parts, different integrators the possibility to connect those different uh, blockchains together. Thank you so much, uh, Luke, for your intervention. And uh, last but not least, Karsten, do you want to tell us a bit about uh, what you guys are doing at, uh, at Ferity and, uh, you know, the digital things that we were talking about before? Sure, yeah. <clears throat> Thanks for having me. Mm, my name is Karsten Stöcker. Mm, I founded a startup called Ferity, and Ferity is a combination of sphere and identity because the core hypotheses we have in the context of the fourth industrial revolution. So when the digital, physical, and biological spheres are bridged by new technologies, that we need an identity system that fulfills basically this requirement to connect human identities, living organisms' identities, with uh, physical identities, with objects, with machines, with autonomous agents, and connect this with yeah, identities in the digital sphere. So that's, that's what we basically do. We truly believe we need an interoperable system that can connect all these identities. We don't need a silo system, identities for vehicles, identities for people living in Portugal, identities for objects in a fast-moving consumer goods supply chain. So with the fourth industrial revolution, when all the technologies are blended together, then we need a pretty interoperable um, identity system. And probably also worth to say, um, so for, from, a, from, a, from a scaling perspective, fourth industrial revolution perspective, it's really valuable to look into what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese are pouring triple-digit billion dollar into all kinds of fourth industrial revolution technologies. There's just one Chinese conglomerate who's building a smart city for 32 billion US dollar. And I think that the culture and the mind, mind, mindset topics, so we are asking for business cases and for a little bit of tiny things. And the, the Chinese business case is Chinese supremacy and it's a global competition we are in. I will come back to this um, uh, a bit later. But anyway, so identity, fourth industrial revolution. So if you look in the internet, today we have 4 billion people in the internet. So we soon, soon have 40 billion IoT devices. We have double-digit, triple-digit billions of software agents in the internet. So soon we have a transition from a human-focused internet with all transactions among humans to fully digital machine autonomous agents internet with entirely new concepts of identity and with entirely new concepts in the digital world i have my digital identity sitting here let's say it's my my amazon alexa agent i can easily create it update it uh, remove it i can clone split um, merge it i can um, aggregate it i can put some optimization um, I can do a lot of things in real time at a very high frequency with a digital identity. And it's an entirely new concept compared to, to humans, which is pretty static. So in addition, so fourth industrial revolution, so we're very passionate about it. Um, it's called by Gartner autonomous things. Some other people call this, it a thing with a ubiquitous agent. So it's basically identity is not static anymore. So with all the data sitting in the database, government database, blockchain database, whatever. 
So our digital identities will be connected with autonomous agents, and the autonomous agents are selling our data, providing access to our physical resources, to our smart home, are providing signals, signals for our healthcare data, kind of to do a prediction, do I need to change my lifestyle, kind of to have better health. And these autonomous agents will pretty much change how we interact. And by the way, there's one big automotive player in Germany that's not asking the question anymore how to sell uh, our cars. It's asking how to sell our mobility services to Amazon Alexa in a business to agent to consumer play and um, yeah, to be relevant in the future when we have, after we have peak auto and no one sells cars anymore. And so bottom line here is, so in terms of this interoperability, digital identity, with humans, physical objects, the cars, and software agents, so there's, there's a bit of interoperability needed. So we hear, heard about verifiability, and it's extremely interesting. So, um, so in Germany, we have Industry 4.0, and other European countries as well. I think we are world leading here. And in Industry 4.0, there's one big problem. So when I produce in a manufacturing line, production line, I produce an object, then the object has some, some inbound logistics, the object is produced, it's quality assured, mm -hmm. It's kind of um, sold as a component, um, implemented in a car, in a product. So there are a lot of transactions going on. The object has to be verified. Um, the quality assurance data needs to be checked. There are some quality inspectors coming in. And there's one big problem in Industry 4.0 when I have this object with the identi identifier sitting in the um, tier one supplier database that then sells the digital twin, the identity to an OEM and the OEM sells to a fleet operator. This doesn't work at all. It's not interoperable from, a, from an addressing scheme and it's not working from a verifiability thing because when it's a fleet operator needs to verify a spare part or an insurance company needs to verify a piece of telematics data, they cannot independently do it. And with blockchain, taking the root of trust out of central databases, putting it on a decentral distributed ledger, suddenly every player along a value chain can take an object, can take an assertion, you mentioned the assertion, can independently verify it, and it's super valuable for Industry 4.0. And of course, what can be done in Industry 4.0 can also be done for humans, and that's um, a little bit the, um, the perspective we have here. So before I close... I think it's a big myth when it comes to blockchain identity that we have all the sandboxes and regulatory kind of cl clarity in place. There are a lot of use cases that can be done into today's existing market designs, into existing regulatory frameworks. So it's not about crying like I need to do this, the regulators and the policymakers. A lot of stuff can be done today in terms of kind of taking on the competition with the Chinese Chinese are doing large-scale field tests. I think we also have to do, go in the same direction to, to have a little bit more dual-mode operations approach, like existing systems in parallel, a distributed system, field testing it, scaling it to build the, te the technology com competencies here to compete with Chinese supremacy in the near future. And also the US, and that's where, where I want to really close, because the US is pushing standards like hell. So in the World, uh, World Wide Web, W3C Consortium, they're pushing the standards, and you mentioned them, verifiable uh, claims, decentralized identities, the semantic webs. They are pushing the standards. And when, when, when I look in this ecosystem, I don't see so much push from, from European player here and there. There are some, but it's a brute force in the US. So we have to take on the competition with the Chinese in terms of their, their risk appetite to scale and build technologies for supremacy and also with Americans that try to standardize everything else for the future of the internet. And uh, yeah, it's pretty competitive. 
And here in Europe, we have to um, yeah, co-create, to collaborate, uh, to cooperate um, among each other to um, stay competitive. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Karsten. We have about half an hour for uh, questions, so I would like to open the floor. Everybody's shy after lunch? <laughs> then maybe I can ask uh, Andrea. Andrea, talking about the IDAS, uh, do you think that we need to go back and uh, revisit the IDAS now that we're talking about uh, blockchain and identity? Hopefully not, but uh, I would like to get your thoughts on that. Whether we like it or not, in 2020, we have to come forward with a report on how IADAS is working, what has been the impact. But certainly, I would like to to, I would say, um, pick up on certain points that we are made earlier. In particular, what, what I had the pleasure a couple of weeks ago was in a panel with the Prime Minister from Malta, and he was, um, he was actually very proudly saying, oh, you know, our country is the first country that has adopted a law on blockchain, actually a set of law on blockchain to enable, I would say, the way in which blockchain may deliver services, both for public, so public service, but even more importantly, for for private sector. And what they struck me is that he said, in a very proud way, we don't mention blockchain in the law, which is, I think, what should make us think a bit, because indeed what, what counts is to see and to try to capture whatever regulation, what is indeed that is going to enable what are the principles? What are indeed the long-term, or I would say, those, uh, those conditions that will nurture innovation and will stimulate innovation? Then today is blockchain, DLT, you call it whatever you like, but in the future we don't know. And But certainly the blockchain, DLT, is bringing forward new elements that it's, it's worth reflecting upon. And uh, another, another issue related to this, and which is also linked to what was just said by Karsten, you know, the 3.3 billion that are spent uh, on every time, every year, on verifying identities. Of course, I mean, if we would be able to make the proofs of what are, is being verified to be portable, because digital allows this to do, then of course, I mean, you can make these spare resources or a lot of those of that bill to do something else. And in this respect, um, most of you know that indeed, with IADAS and the Anti-Money Laundering Directive, PSD2, which is indeed another example where IDE, electronic identification, can play with a regard, I would say, to meeting requirements for strong, cost, um, um, strong customer authentication as by the regulation. In, all this, in, all, in this context, we are working with the GJUST, with the GFISMA on indeed EID and KYC, the purpose being to make, make it portable, so that once... Uh, Claire has done something in, in a branch, moving and asking for a mortgage elsewhere. She has not to go again. How this is being served, of course, a, blog, a distributor ledger may become extremely important. But what I think is indeed important is to capture what is indeed to be unlocked in terms of regulatory um, question, issues that may impede now to this to happen. And of course, sandboxing in sandbox in this respect is certainly something that we all welcome. Thank you, Andrea. Please. Can you get uh, to, to a microphone, please? Thanks. And if you can tell your name as well. Uh, Ramesh. Um, 
So I'm uh, working with IEEE uh, standards and also have a startup. Uh, so if you were to adopt the decentralized identity, who would pay for the infrastructure? Who would maintain the infrastructure? Who wants to take this? I can start with a limited perspective as a commercial entity on this one, because it's depending on the use case, classically, the kind of financial uh, activity. Anyway, if you have a decentralized identity scheme, what is happening is that different business models either have explicit monetization opportunities, saying, look, you can get without advertising that kind of classic thing. You need to pay a subscription that you can basically host store uh, this kind of activity, or it's an embedded kind of uh, system or a component in a, in a broader kind of system. So the monetization in the commercial world is happening typically along those three lines. Is it the kind of subscription topic? Is it a transaction-based fee? Or is it a third party? famously called this advertising-based business model in a way. That's the three classical monetization opportunities and financial sustainable models <clears> in a way. I can't talk on behalf of governments what the potential financial uh, instruments would be to fund this kind of activities, but typically that's in the commercial sector on this one. What is helping this kind of thing is scale incredible. And I mentioned quickly in my initial comment about economies of scale happening and, and this is a, 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 a panel on blockchain and identity, but the foundation, at least from our perspective, is the superior economics of the cloud model, the hyperscale cloud model in a way, on three layers typically to be manifested. Number one, the unit cost of IT typically goes down by an order of magnitude. The cost of or the economics of compliance typically increases by two orders of magnitude. And the speed of innovation take-up typically increased by three orders of magnitude because you can ship to a global customer base on a daily base new functionalities in a way. And so when people talk about the cloud paradigm, typically this kind of scale benefits are not the primary dimension they're thinking about. And especially in the context of platforms like blockchains or identities, those kind of economic effects are kicking in very, very fast. Thank you. Andreas, Andrea, do you want to say anything on the infrastructure side of things? Okay. Um, I suppose the very question is, who is going to benefit unless we make an infrastructure to work for society? And let's not forget, Yadas is an example. Investment has started in the 90s to facilitate the engagement of citizens with governments at the local, regional, and, so, and federal or central levels. But once you have done it you know, at the national, that could be leveraged to make easier for private sector and the user to be first secure, secondly, to reach more transparency and a higher level of accountability in the digital, which are preconditions for security to be there, because otherwise there is no security. There is technical security, but nothing else. And even more importantly, it is much easier, I would say, to re-establish a kind of you know, fair balance between who is crunching the data, my identity data, and where the values is created to whom the benefit goes. So I would say, in a provocative way, if we don't afford the security infrastructure, who is going to benefit from the identity? And we see now, in the way in which identity has been crunched, that the most of the value is not for those who, who get their identity data to be crunched, but they are for those that are crunching the data in a way that is not even easy for whoever to establish exactly what is indeed 
the value that is generated. You may be associated to some value, but you know, I suspect that you know the economic model it goes well beyond what is is somehow public knowledge in this respect. Thank you, uh, Andrea and Cole. You wanted to add something? So I hear the, the maintenance question quite a lot. Where, where is the data going to be maintained? Who's going to be organizing it? Who's going to be running it? Sometimes you'll hear that perhaps it should be the governments that do that. And I'm, I'm not going to say yes or no on that. But the only thing I would say is then it becomes quite jurisdictional. Mm -hmm. Now, if DLT is meant to help solve some cross-border issues, that's one of the things I'm told a lot about DLT, if you're only leaving it with governments, then you are going to lead into a jurisdictional problem. I don't know what the solution is to that, but I just think it's something that's worth thinking about when you're talking about maintenance and handing it over just to governments. Please. So I think this is something that policymakers have yet to discuss. I'm very keen that it is not the taxpayer. I'm very keen that the governments do not get involved because they'll do it badly and cost us more money. Uh, and I don't want consumers either. So that leaves the businesses, who in some form will have to pay some sort of fee for access. So when they verify identity, there will be a fee. And it might be a tiny fee. It might be uh, a one euro cent for 100 checks or, or whatever it is. But I would be very keen to keep the base in the private sector and keep the taxpayer out of this. Thank you. Anybody else? There's more questions. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Kai Wagner, also from an identity company. Um, I'd like to just touch on this first on this point made before, and um, what I would like to touch on is this question of where the government or where the European Union could be involved, especially in terms of standardization. Because yes, it should be to um, to companies, it should be to competition in the market. But for that, we need a clear stance on standardization. We need a clear stance on where is the IDAS and how is the IDAS integrated into self-sovereign identity? And how is it integrated with these open standards we've been talking about with DIF that was mentioned by Microsoft, or also part of this is our company. And it's really about how can we establish a market that truly allows for competition so we actually see these effects of um, prices going down, better utility coming from these different <coughs> attribution sources, these kind of things. I think that in a way that uh, <clears throat> could be considered as um, the sandbox approach, actually, uh, the, uh, what the Commission is promoting is this type of approach. We have done in the past uh, a pilot with mobile because EIDAS is indeed provided the framework and leverages what is there. You know, I'm from a country where identity is normally provided by the private, by public sector. You know, I have an identity card since I am 16 and electronic identity is also there. But what was notified under IADAS was the private sector scheme, as in the UK. Why? Because there is a business there. If this is recognized by member states in the context of what can be enforced as credential to prove the identity up to the point of in-person verification of the, old, the legitimate holder of these credentials, then of course this becomes an asset for whoever is going to transact. Either the user who may pay some fees or the recipients. You know, if I have to, I would say, manage uh, data to prove the identity of my prospective clients in the digital, I have to go quite via a quite a demanding process if I do it without relying on a trust anchor that I may leverage for that purpose. 
I need to get you know a copy of document which I have to maintain. I have to make them secure, to make them available, blah 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 blah. I could indeed have to take in the risk management framework other measures, including you know if I show up to to a bank to get my identity plus you know invoices or what. All these data they have to be maintained, actualized if needed, and all the rest of it. If the digital identity is actually to be becomes transactional in the sense that can be relied upon as it is under the others, then, of course, I mean, the business model emerge. But the member states should make the effort, as some member states have done, to open up this opportunity for the private sector to provision and to rely upon what is going to be somehow made rec recognized and enforceable cross-border. That is the first point. The second, the second aspect related to, that, to your question is that when I have the trust anchor that is enforceable, then, of course, anything else that I need to transact is really what is fit, f matching the need-to-know principle. Do I need to prove, as was made, said before, you know, that I'm above a certain age? Yes. If that yes is an assertion which can be enforced, associated to an identity that is distinguishable, then the relying party just get the yes with a stamp or whatever. Much easier for the relying party to discharge the obligation under whatever regulation, the sector specific, the GDPR, because he has a yes and perhaps some, uh, I would say, cross border identifier which is persistent according to the other. So there is plenty of opportunities to think digital identity anchored to recognized enforceable electronic identity as the transformative element to change the way in which we do engage in, in the digital for sake of you know, being even more protected vis-a-vis -vis what we may or may not like to be doing ourselves or delegating somebody else to do for that for us. Yes, <laughs> I'd like to, to add on what Andrea just said on, on the EI, this kind of architecture. The way how I see this as a technologist person is based, maybe it's a surprising kind of statement, I do think that Europe has one of the most advanced interoperability frameworks. The European interoperability yeah. framework is a four-layered model, in case you haven't looked into this one, where you have four layers of interoperability, technical interoperability, semantic interoperability, organizational interoperability, and the fourth layer is legal interoperability. And there might be a fifth one, which is not in the document, which is human interoperability. So if two people don't want to work together, no technology will make it happen. So the four layers are to be spread between the different things. The way how I see it, and maybe Andrea would see it differently, that EIDAS is focusing on the semantic layer and the legal interoperability thing. Because no technology will make it happen that a government agency or, or a civil servant has to accept a certificate, a proof, and stuff like that. That has to be done at the legal interoperability layer. And new technology typically develops much faster versus the evolution of legal interoperability because societal norms are moving slower typically than technical innovation. So the way how I see this inter interrelated kind of layers is that semantic layer and legal interoperability is the EIDAS kind of core competence and focus and framework. And the blockchain slash identity is rather focusing on the technical slash organizational layer, how to create basically technical protocols that people can trust, how to basically create business process that is ex executable from a usability perspective like that. And so this intersection between the four layers is the way how I see this interaction between new technology and the core competence of government saying this is the way how our society should work. If I can just pop in here quickly. Um, 
A few years ago, the Competition and Markets Authority in the United Kingdom got the biggest banks together on their open banking working group, and they got them to design a standardised interface. And that was the industry deciding what those standards would be. And that will be the basis of open banking in the future. That's the basis of PSD2. So I'd hope that industry can work together and they can design the standards. That's certainly my preferred option. Thank you. Nicole? I just wanted to touch back on the sandbox point that was made earlier that the Commission would like to see member states, I don't want to paraphrase, but um, using this tool much more than they do at the moment. Um, if in Europe the sandbox isn't that prevalent, it's used a lot more in other jurisdictions. I'd like to go one step further than talking about sandboxes within the member states, because whilst I am a keen advocate for that, I think a lot of innovation happens outside of Europe. You know, you need to look to APAC, you look to the US, you actually look to the Middle East and you see what's going on there. And in order to progress, you need to look at where the best practices are. And it may not be that the best practices are always within Europe. I think open banking has been an excellent initiative. In terms of data frameworks, the EU has been very forward-thinking. In terms of sandboxes, less so. So when I think about what I would like to see from a sandbox, or not even just a sandbox, an innovation hub, I was absolutely delighted when the Global Financial Innovation Network was launched. When I saw the first consultation come out saying, we'd like regulators from across different jurisdictions to get together because we want to sit down and talk and discuss what the issues are, what the policies should be, because innovation is a problem across multiple jurisdictions. It's not something that's just based within the UK or based within Spain or based just within the EU. That, that, that's not how it works. You know, my, my parents moved from South Africa to England about 40 years ago. Getting a bank account, an, an international bank account, very, very tricky. Is it easier now? No, it's not. It's still very difficult for someone from the US to get a bank account in, in the UK. That's a, an international problem. So for me, what I would absolutely love to see is for some of the member states within the EU to get involved in the Global Financial Innovation Network. If you don't want to do the sandbox part, whilst I... To be honest, I don't understand why. Um, you should be involved from an educational perspective to speak to other regulators, whether it's MATH, whether it's HKMA, um, whether it's someone in the Middle East, um, Abu Dhabi or Dubai, because then you're going to either sit there and say, well, I don't agree with this, and actually the way we're doing it is better, and you're educating them. Or if I'm going to be quite honest, it's probably going to be the other way around in a number of instances where you're going to have someone from Singapore tell you what they're doing in the DLT space and why that would benefit you in the EU. Because, yes, it's great to have competition, but it's great also to collaborate, and it's great to look outside of the EU at the other jurisdictions, which will actually help you get better, help all of us get better. So that, that was just the point I wanted to add on the sandbox, because it's not just about within the member states or just within Europe. It's, it's looking outwards as well. Just adding one more thing, because it has been mentioned, the kind of aspiration that new concepts developed in Europe should be global lighthouse kind of things. And GDPR is one of those kind of, let's say, developments where Europe is really leading from a kind of breadth of thinking how personal data should be protected in a way. And I want to share one data point which I found particularly interesting. The way how we implement uh, GDPR is uh, globally consistent across our global services in a way. So we don't have a European version of our products, productivity, office, whatever the, time, the name is, and the US version or an Asian version. We have one version. And so what we did was, given that it's a kind of industrialization of IT, we can measure how many people are asking for data access on getting information 
about their own data being stored in the service. So in the first six months, five million people executed their rights given by the GDPR to look into kind of data access. But most of the five million people were from outside Europe. So the country with the highest number of people benefiting from the developments in Europe were in the US, two million people. The second one was Japan and the third one was Germany in a way. And so it's really visible globally that the standards, standards set by Europe are used by humans and people on the planet. Thank you, Andreas. Uh, I saw a couple of hands on this over there. Yep. Hi, I'm Torben David with Bitcom, the German Digital Association. Um, we've touched, obviously, on like how to create an interoperable identity solution, and it's all very exciting and something that we're also excited uh, to, to support. But um, in, in Germany, we fight much more basic uh, ancient battles, you could say, uh, for example, just, just last week, uh, the, the federal minister for the chancellery at, a, at one of our conferences estimated that in Germany, there's still 1,800 paper form requirements in German law. So even if we create the best solution for, to put identity on the blockchain or online and take uh, control over the data back to, back to the individuals, they might not actually be able to use that identity a whole lot because of the way that, that paper form is still embedded in national laws. Obviously, this is different from country to country. Germany is an extreme case. Other countries like Estonia uh, basically do not have those requirements anymore. But is there something that, that you think, and that goes to everyone, I think, uh, that you think the, the European level could do to, to facilitate the, the transformation back from the paper-based uh, administration to the digital administration? The primary responsibility, the sovereign responsibility to intervene in that area is of, of the member states. So, and the way in which I would say we have been conducting, I would say, <clears throat> or what, the way in which the policy has been shaped up through the last uh, 10, uh, 12 years is about engaging the member states in building uh, upon uh, uh, those good experiences, uh, good, I would say, projects, which at the, at the um, European level will drive the digital transformation cross-border, but also at the national level. In this respect, I can, I can tell you that you know, I'm, I'm very um, pleased to say that on the 21st of November, the Regulation Single Digital Gateway was published on the official journal. That contains in Article 14 the first ever cross-border instantiation of provision on one solid principle related to the 21-22 procedures, which are there. This means that, the, of course, the one solid principle, which means that the giving the possibility to um, citizens and companies to consent for data to be fetched where the data are already stored, provided that, of course, they are available in digital forms, is actually there. But, uh, you know, that is already something that gives, uh, first, uh, a clear message that there is nothing that is indeed, I would say, making things complicated more than, I would say, resisting to the digital transformation. Digital transformation is to make life easier to our, for our citizens, for our businesses, and it can be managed. But in order to be managed, in particular when you go to public sector, you have to have the trust anchor that is the way in which I can digitally um, be reassured that the person whether he's a natural person, legal person, because he, he does cover both. The person that is acting digitally towards my administration is actually associated to a, 
to an identity that has been verified, proved, and on which I can rely because there is a framework that allows me to do it. It seems very little, but certainly the more this will become the practice, the easier indeed will be also for, I would say, um, countries that uh, have been a bit, I would say, like, uh, di less digital in the past, to see that is doable not just for sake of their citizens, but to make their citizens to benefit from what the scale, so Europe, is going to offer to them as a person, as entrepreneurs, as businessmen, as a consumer, because that is where it boils down to. So it, it, we are driving this with, you know, the others, with the one solely principle, with the action plans, with other legislation. I mean, global um, dimension was alluded to. The Financial Action Task Force, which is about anti-money laundering, is now tailored to what in Europe will be anti-money laundering number three. We are number five. The digital has been now pushed there and we are paving the way. There has been taken as a reference for sake of making it possible for business to leverage this. We are working the UN Citral level to make digital trust services and the digital identity to be recognized in the trade dimension, business to business. Once it's there, then of course you can make the federating approach to become the practice. And this will have a repercussion also at the national level, because I mean, you can't be digital cross-border, you're not digital national, because I mean, expectations are created to push also government to act more quickly. And it's not just Germany, unfortunately. Thank you, Andrea. Andreas? Yeah, my answer is an Austrian being neighbor to Germany, in a way. I do think there's a couple of preconditions which are helping to accelerate this kind of thing. I'm very proud as an Austrian and European citizen that our country started to get very deep into the kind of foundational things, addressing the cultural sentiment kind of thing and the foundational stuff. So we changed the constitution for two things for accelerate e-government services. Number one, the concept of original fundamentally changed from a paper-based original, ultimately proof of ownership, proof of truth in court, and the digital representation to be used to simplify business processes, to the reverse order saying the digital copy is the original, ultimately holding in court, and you get a paper copy for human readability kind of thing. So this foundational thing accelerated significantly the uptake of digital services in government, but also the culture of identity, we have sectoral identify, which is the second thing, which I'm very proud about in my country, that we say, how do we balance properly the power of identity, but also the risk using digital identities, and so we, what's, it's called a sectoral identifies, that every single ministry has a different slice of your identity, and they need a court order to recombine it back to basically do something between cross ministries kind of thing. So this is something where I think any, every country has to address the kind of cultural resistance yeah, to accelerate the uptake of technology. Karsten, any thoughts on Germany? Yeah, so thoughts on Germany. I think, um, yeah, um, I think people are aware of this. Mm, it's probably not on the highest part of the political agenda, I would say. So we have other, other problems on the political agenda. And maybe I would like to maybe go a bit, bit back to this industry for zero because this is high on the agenda. And at least I think the German industry is pushing to get um, digital identity systems verifiability into this, and that's, that's a good news. In addition, I want to say, so when it's about identity, it's not, let's say, we need to have a shitload of um, blockchain, inf expensive blockchain infrastructure in place. 
So I think we only need a bit of, let's say, a blockchain, immutable blockchain storage in place to store an immutable proof to anchor a verifiable claim. And it's not so, so expensive. In addition, there are a lot of cryptographic methods that are where, where a lot of kind of research is going on and the industrial players are kind of jumping on the bandwagon to use cryptographic data structure to, to, to prove something off-chain, to anchor proof on-chain and to really drive scalability. Because so with these kind of things, um, yeah, scalability is possible. It's possible <coughs> in industry for zero sector, but then it's also possible for humans as well because they have less, less transactions. Last thing, what's, what's also kind of an, uh, an aspect, let's say at least in the industry in Germany, so we have GDPR for humans, and especially when I have machines, and machines are doing economic transactions because they have their wallet and do some mm -hmm. transactions, so the machines are also vulnerable to, to be exploited by another machine kind of, that's kind of, let's say, um, trying to get uh, um, hold of data or to, to do some with leaked data. And for that, for that reason, there's also this concept that's now suddenly a little bit bottom-up discussed GDPR for machines to protect the machines and the agents when they engage in commercial or some other sensitive transactions um, yeah, that they also have, let's say, a privacy-preserving identity infrastructure. And um, yeah, that's a good thing and a lot of um, engineering still has to be done. <laughs> Thank you. Paolo. Awesome. We still have one, one time for more, one more question. So, um, so my name is Paulo Rodrigues. I'm from Portugal. I was involved in the e-identity process for Stork uh, back in the days. So I remember the challenge back then when, well, we have this model of funding so that we can create the infrastructure, and then we we try to allure um, um, business partners into the process so that they can be part of the sustainability model. So I fully agree with Mr. Ashley when they say we shouldn't uh, push on the taxpayer. We should have the business uh, to pay for, for the benefit of having uh, certified attributes. That is one way of doing things. And this discussion has diverged a little bit from, from blockchain itself. And I would like to reframe it in terms of blockchain in a sense that blockchain is kind of a sum of three different uh, key features, which is distributed systems, which is token economics, and it's uh, cybersecurity or cryptographic. And I would like to, to focus on the token economics of it, because if we look into the example of Bitcoin that started this whole conversation more than 10 years ago, the beauty of the, of the academic uh, process is the token economics, is the alignment of incentives of the, the participants in this model. So the system is self-sustainable, which is totally different but from what we're dis discussing here. We're discussing a top-down approach where we fund and when we try to engage. And from, and from a, an approach of alignment of incentives, you simply create the framework or the legal framework, and then the system by itself is sustainable. So my question to the panel is if is foreseen in this discussion around identity to uh, work upon the alignment of incentives of finding some framework to have a token economic coupled with the identity process. Thank you. Any takers? So uh, I can answer this from a technical perspective. So, um, so um, a couple of people are looking into crypto economic incentive models that people put infrastructure in place. So with Bitcoin, we have the problem is you just burn energy for kind of for doing this hashing. And I think, so when you look into the basic needs of identity, it's key management, 
and to, to be able to do privacy-preserving transactions. And there are a couple of technologies, such as multi-party computation, and that's, that leads the vision we have to combine multi-party computation with a crypto-economic incentive model that people put the technology in place, the privacy-preserving technology in place, that um, yeah, the citizen can kind of use it for their identity transactions, for their digital twins, digital me's, whatever they have. That's a kind of, let's say, a little bit of a technology push. Um, that what, 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 what we are doing, provide incentives to put privacy-preserving technology in place, exactly yeah, as in the Bitcoin example, but not for a cryptocurrency, primarily for an identity system. Just one, add one comment. Uh, I think if you expect that out of the government, you put like a, a blockchain with identity in there and you, you expect industry to, to fund it, it might be turned out in the other way because uh, what you will see is that uh, industry, if they have a use case, they will strike, apply it, having implement their own ID and then fund it because they use it, they have a business use of it. So uh, be prepared to accept that there exist different IDs. If I look to my, personally, I'm a Belgium citizen and Europe, so I will have an ID in Europe, but I'm working for an American company. We'd be very surprised that American company, if they're using an ID that will be based on a European uh, model or uh, rules. So they, they will have the European ones. Uh, I'm a diving instructor. Next year, they will start all uh, uh, trainings, tests that we do must be electronically noted. So I will have there also an ID. It's not linked to my electronic ID of the government. So you will have, people will have maybe dozens of different IDs. And I think you need to be prepared to cope with that and to link them together. Uh, I don't believe there is will be one ID. I said it in uh, the beginning. It's not like my uh, passport that I put in the blockchain. If you try to do uh, that, I don't think it will succeed. Uh, you, you will look into synergies and in use cases. And it, in the beginning, it will be learning and uh, maybe uh, Sometimes it will fail and you build on that. But uh, if you think that you will have an overall with all IDs and everybody using that, personally, I don't believe in that. Thanks. Uh, quick comment, Andreas, because we are uh, over time. Super, super quick comment on this one. You mentioned the kind of, let's say, what is holding us back to uptake uh, this kind of thing. A couple of quick comments on this one. We had this European experience that uh, grid computing was funded out of public money but it didn't create a new economic model. So when the public funding stopped, the model didn't survive. Cloud was a kind of, let's say, technically the same thing, but a different economic model behind it. AI is a nice example for blockchain. So in the last 12 months, I don't know if, if people paid attention to this one, the cost of AI models went down by a factor of 500 because hardware, software, algorithms, data availability, all these things created network effects on this one. We see the very same in the blockchain domain as well, because you can run blockchain in your own server, you could go to the cloud in, in virtual machines, but you can use it on micropayment with serverless infrastructure as well. So each one has orders of magnitude better efficiency. So the objective of have innovation diffusion is to keep the cost of failure down, that people have a safe ground, a kind of sandbox, an economic sandbox to test out new innovations to find the proper business model bottom-up because top-down, it might be the wrong guidance getting top-down in a way. But there's a lot of network effects happening underneath. Thank you, Andres. Mr. Fox, any closing remarks? 
I was very glad he agreed with me.